0: Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm
1: Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Poerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston.
2: And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's San Francisco Outpost.
0: It is Thursday, February 7th, which we would be remiss in not pointing out is Adam's birthday. Adam,
1: if you don't mind my asking, how old are you turning today? Damian, today I am old plus one.
2: Happy birthday, Adam. And without further ado, here's what's on the docket this week
0: few of biotech's most futuristic technologies are having a bad week. Two unrelated drug companies, Sangamo Therapeutics and Solid Biosciences, both just announced disappointing results from clinical trials testing their experimental therapies. We'll talk about what the news means for biotech's quest to bring sci-fi
1: medicines to life. Should the government get a cut of the profits of pricey drugs birthed as research projects inside government-funded labs? That's a question that's been sparking a debate, thanks in large part to newly elected Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Drug discovery scientist Derek Lowe, who's found himself in a bit of a Twitter disagreement with AOC, joins us to talk about his views on the issue.
2: New Jersey Senator Cory Booker recently became the latest Democrat to enter the race to be the party's 2020 presidential nominee. Booker comes with some baggage related to the pharmaceutical industry. That's Washington correspondent, Lev Fasher, joins us to break down the emerging democratic field.
1: But first, a word from our sponsor.
3: This episode of The Read Out Loud is brought to you by Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar, a Genentech Science podcast where you'll hear experts unpack the biology behind some of the most complicated diseases like asthma, multiple sclerosis, and cancer. Visit gene.com forward slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot com forward slash podcast. And subscribe to Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar through your favorite podcast player today.
1: This has not been a good week for futuristic
0: biotech technologies. So yeah, in this case, we're talking about gene therapy and genome editing. Gene therapy, of course, is the idea that you can treat an inherited disease by swapping out a faulty gene for a healthy one, and genome editing is the process of cutting and pasting DNA to basically do a similar job. They're fairly new ideas, but each has demonstrated remarkable potential in recent years.
2: This week, though, was a reminder that fairly new also means very risky. Two big ideas in gene therapy and genome editing ran into serious problems. We're going to unpack what happened and what it means for some of biotech's most talked about technologies.
0: So let's start with genome editing. CRISPR obviously gets all the headlines, but there is more than one way to edit genetic code. And that brings us to a company called Sangamo Therapeutics. Adam, what is Sangamo up to?
1: Yeah. So Damien, Sangamo Therapeutics is also doing genome editing. Uh, They use their own proprietary technology. It's called Zinc Fingers, and it's similar to CRISPR. There are some differences between the technologies, but Sangamo is, is using its Zinc Finger therapies to run a clinical trial, actually the first human clinical trial of a genome editing technology in patients with a rare inherited disease called MPS2.
2: But as we learned this week, things didn't go as planned, right?
1: That's right, Rebecca. So they're running this clinical trial. Results were out this week. And... For the most part, the data were negative. I mean, the company sort of admits that their zinc finger attempt at fixing this genetic disease, it's not working. It's not potent enough. Now, what they did find was sort of a hint of efficacy in a single patient that was treated with the highest dose of their zinc finger technology. And that is kind of enough for them to sort of move on to kind of a version 2.0. But overall, this is kind of a setback. So as we've mentioned, a lot of the focus has been on CRISPR genome editing and a few
0: CRISPR companies are finally starting clinical trials of their own this year. Is there a read through between what happened with Sangamo and Zinc Fingers and what we might see from the powers
1: that be in CRISPR? That's a great question, Damon. I mean, I would say that the different kinds of genome editing technologies, they're different enough that there's probably not read through from from zinc fingers to CRISPR. You know, we're talking about different diseases. We're talking about different requirements in terms of sort of the efficiency of genome editing and then kind of how that genome editing will work in the body. But at the same time, you know, there's been a lot of hype and a lot of hope and optimism around genome editing. So for this first clinical trial to come out and to be negative is a little bit sobering.
2: Now let's move on to gene therapy. As we said, the idea there is to swap out a mutated gene for an effective one. And in the case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, a disease caused by a single genetic mutation, gene therapy seems like an ideal method of treatment.
1: And that's the theory at Solid Biosciences, a company founded with the goal of curing DMD. But Solid just reported data from its first human trial, and things didn't go as planned. That's right. So this is a small clinical
0: trial. We're only looking at three patients' worth of data. But what everyone was expecting or hoping to see, that includes Solid's management and, of course, the company's investors, was a measurable amount of the protein that's missing in boys with DMD. And what they saw fell far below those expectations.
2: Solid wasn't the first company to see gene therapy as a promising path in DMD. What do we think this might mean for everyone else in the field?
0: Well, I think primarily it's important to note that Solid is not declaring this as a failure, and this was evidence from the lowest dose of their gene therapy. So the company still has hope, although, of course, their stock price fell by about 70%. But in terms of the other companies in the field, which includes Sarepta Therapeutics and then, of course, the pharma giant Pfizer, in a sense, Solid's misfortune is good for them because it's a competitive field, and if everything goes according to plan for them, that would be one fewer therapy that they'd have to contend with. But also, in a sense, it's bad. The gene that produces dystrophin, which is the key protein required to treat DMD, is among the longest in the body, which creates just a physics problem for these companies. It's hard to stick a really long gene into an encapsulation that you can inject into a patient. So having early and disappointing results from one attempt at that is, I think, arguably kind of discouraging for everybody else trying to do something similar, even though their approaches are slightly different in each case.
1: And I think this week what we're getting is a a good reminder that, you know, biotech is risky and drug development for all the times that we talk about the advances and innovation, you know, there's just as much disappointment and setbacks. Failure is kind of just part of the industry.
0: So here's a question. Where do drugs come from Exactly.
2: Well, sometimes they're invented inside pharma companies, but other times, the drugs that emerge from industry were birthed as research projects inside government funded labs. Publicly funded scientists at the National Institutes for Health, for instance, make important scientific discoveries that are then handed off to private industry and become new drugs that sometimes carry high price tags.
1: And when this happens,
0: should the government get a cut of the profits? That's a fairly old question, but it's one that's been sparking debate this week on Twitter, thanks in large part to newly elected Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC as she is popularly known.
2: At a congressional hearing this week in Washington, D.C., AOC expressed the view that NIH acts like an early investor in the development of drugs. But when those drugs later become privatized... The government receives no return on its investment. Would it be correct, uh, Dr. Kesselheim, to characterize the NIH money that is being used in in development and research as an early investment? Yes. So the public is acting as an early investor in the production of these um, in the production of these drugs. Is the public receiving any sort of direct return? on that investment from the highly profitable drugs that are developed from that
1: research. Uh, No, in most cases, uh, there isn't. Her view, as you might imagine, has prompted pushback from some in the drug industry. So one person who took issue with that characterization is
0: Derek Lowe. Lowe has been a medicinal chemist for about 30 years. He works on drug discovery projects in a large pharmaceutical company in the Boston area.
2: Lowe is probably best known for his widely read blog, In the Pipeline, where he offers hot takes and analysis on all sorts of chemistry and drug industry topics. He wrote a response to AOC earlier this week in a post that stirred up heated debate around public policy, controversy over how drug discovery works, and accusations of sexism.
1: Derek is on the podcast today to talk about all of that. Hello, Derek. Thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, I'm certainly glad to be here.
0: So, Derek, the basic idea Ocasio-Cortez stated is that taxpayers fund NIH, which makes important scientific discoveries, and then drug companies license those discoveries and turn them into high-priced medicines that not everyone can afford. You obviously don't see it exactly that way. Can you explain kind of your take on, on that process and what you took issue with from her characterization?
3: Sure. Well, it varies a lot from drug to drug. You know, no drug story is ever going to be the same as another But in general, academia and industry, we do different things, and we each have our specialties. And academia is, as you're saying, making basic discoveries. They're looking at cell pathways. They're looking at physiology discovering new functions for proteins that we never knew what they did, all that sort of thing. Publicly funded research in the U.S. is really the engine that's driving biopharma research worldwide. I, I don't think anyone would dispute that. I'm definitely not here to put down academic research. But those discoveries are not drugs. And that's where we start getting into what some people consider technicalities and what I consider my entire career, actually, because Finding a new enzyme or a new cellular pathway that might be associated with a disease is just the very beginning. Most of the time, you don't get drug compounds, and by compounds, I mean a real physical chemical substance that someone will put in their mouth to make them feel better. You usually don't get those from academia. What you get are ideas you get suggestions, you get correlations, and it's up to biopharma companies, for the most part, to try to turn those into medications.
2: So tell us more about what those pharma companies do next. How much time and money does it take to translate those ideas, those correlations, into a pill at the pharmacy? And who do you think is kind of best suited to do that, academia or private industry?
3: Well, people argue a lot about the amount of money it takes. They argue ferociously about the amount. Let's just say it's a hell of a lot. It is at least in the hundreds of millions of dollars, arguably north of that, because if you look at the number of drug approvals from companies and then total up the amount of money that they're spending on R&D, which you can get from their quarterly and annual SEC filings, If you just divide that out, you get figures in the low billions. So it's a lot. And industry is really a lot better suited to do it. There are a lot of things that we do that academia just doesn't do.
1: So, Derek, I know this is a topic that that you've written about on your blog. What percentage of drugs that people take today actually have their roots in public-funded research?
3: Okay. Now we get into a big question about roots because if you want to say – what percentage of them go back to discoveries about disease and enzymes and proteins and cells that had publicly funded research involved, I'd say it's probably 100%. We all build on each other. That's science. But if you want to talk about what percentage of the actual things that people are putting into their mouths came from an academic lab, it's very small. Oh, just as a seat-of-the-pants estimate, about 15% tops.
0: So you put all these views and facts and figures into a blog post that went up last week. And in that blog post, you said that it was Ocasio-Cortez's job to hold hearings on a topic like this. But you also criticized her takeaway, and you stated that her knowledge of where drugs come from appears to be, quote, seriously inadequate, end quote. And then that, of course, you already know this, but that prompted a tweet from the congresswoman herself who said, quote, this is what being a woman in politics looks like. Disagreements aren't labeled as differing opinions. They're labeled as one's knowledge being inadequate. End quote. So how do you respond to that?
3: It's tricky to respond to it because I definitely do not want to get into an argument about, you know, how much of a misogynist I am or am not. Believe me. But this is partly the difference between someone who is a scientist, male or female, And someone who is in politics, male or female. Because in science, all the time, we come up to each other and say, how do you know that's true? What's the evidence for that? Do you have any data for that? And, of course, out in the general world, uh, you know, questions like that in a conversation are considered just short of insulting and, in fact, probably past insulting. But in a scientific setting, that's what we do. You ask people, what's your evidence? Unfortunately, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez's questions made it appear very much like she doesn't actually know what drug research is like. And as I said in the post, I don't expect her to, but she can learn.
2: So a lot of the criticism of your blog post centered on the choice of that word inadequate. Do you regret expressing yourself in, in that way or using that phrasing?
3: I regret that a lot of her fans found that insulting i didn't mean it to be i don't think that her knowledge of where, of how drug discovery works is adequate i really don't a lot of them seem to have confused that with me you know directly insulting her i think that she's an excellent politician she got elected out of nowhere she has tremendous influence for someone who's just gotten elected she knows a lot more than me about being an influential politician. But I know more than her about drug discovery. I've been doing it for almost 30 years.
0: I think a sticking point that people took issue with in terms of the choice of words is that, you know, in the hearing in question, Ocasio-Cortez is asking questions of academic experts, including Aaron Kesselheim from Harvard, and not necessarily making assertions of her own. And so the characterization of her knowledge being inadequate, I think that offended people who saw that video as her trying to expand her knowledge by asking these people. I feel like I haven't really seen you engage with that particular criticism of the phrasing. And I guess the question I have is, is, would you like to do so now?
3: Well, people need to realize what congressional hearings are like. For the most part, they're sort of an elaborately choreographed dance. This is not just you know Congresswoman Alexandra Cortez, sorry, Ocasio-Cortez. This is the way all congressional hearings work. What you see is a member of Congress asking a question which is carefully phrased to give the exact answer that they're looking for to have in the hearing. In this case, Dr. Kasselheim's views are well known. He's written many, many articles and appeared in many public forums with his views on drug discovery. So this is not asking a question out of nowhere. This is more of an invitation, as all these things are, to a witness to state their views again.
1: So Derek, one thing that's perhaps lost in all of this is that you, like AOC, have been pretty critical of the drug industry. If you had the chance to have a conversation with
3: her, do you think you'd find common ground? I would hope so. I think it'd be an interesting conversation, although I'm sure that my employer's corporate communications department would have a litter of lizards at the very thought. So um, I doubt if it's going to happen. But... At the same time, she has a lot more things on her agenda than drug discovery. I mean, I could easily email her and her staff a whole selection of review articles and the like, and I don't know if anyone actually has the time to read them. I mean, the State of the Union was the next day. Um, I believe that she and her staffers have moved on pretty thoroughly.
0: Well, Derek, we appreciate you coming on the show.
3: Sure. Glad to.
0: We reached out to Ocasio-Cortez's office to see if she wanted to issue a broader statement on Derek's blog post or expand upon the issue, and we didn't hear back.
1: There are 634 days until the 2020 presidential election, and that means we're long overdue to talk about drug pricing and the growing field of Democratic contenders.
2: Stats Washington correspondent Lev Fasher has been covering the early days of the race. And he joins us now to talk about
0: how it's shaping up. Lev, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, guys.
1: So, Lev, let's start with the latest Democrat to join the field. That's Cory Booker, a senator from New Jersey who announced his campaign last Friday in front of a fence outside his home in Newark.
4: People in America are losing faith that this nation will work for them. I'm running for president because I want to address these
1: issues. Booker has made news more than once on issues related to the pharmaceutical industry. Lev, give us a rundown of Booker's history on the issue and the questions he may face in his campaign.
4: Right. So I think the the big moment to focus on here is a vote Cory Booker took at the beginning of 2017 in the middle of the night on a, a meaningless kind of show vote, a Senate amendment that was totally unlikely to ever become law but on a bill nonetheless to allow personal drug importation from Canada. Cory Booker voted no, citing safety concerns, regulatory concerns. And he all of a sudden, just overnight, became this progressive traitor, this villain, this person who sided with Big Pharma, who who just was not interested in lowering drug prices for Americans. That was the narrative. It was backed up by the fact that in Cory Booker's most recent Senate cycle in in 2014 when he was most recently elected, he accepted, uh, including donations from pharmaceutical industry employees, he accepted more industry money for his campaign than anyone else in Congress. So he's left himself a lot of work to do In terms of proving to progressives that he is willing to work with the more progressive wing of the party on drug prices. We've already seen him really pivot in terms of language, in terms of speaking out against the the Celgene merger a few weeks ago, in terms of legislation he's introduced. But again, it's a question of how sincere that pivot is going to be seen.
2: So Booker went on a radio show called The Breakfast Club the other day, where he was asked whether he's going to hold pharma accountable. Here's what Booker had to say.
4: We're going to regulate them. And, and frankly, uh, if I become president of the United States, we're going to push to be able to punish them if they raise prices. You saw the EpiPen I mentioned already. I mean, these stories are unconscionable how people are are profiteering off of the pain of others.
2: Love, what did you make of Booker's answer?
4: So again, Booker is, is frustrated by this perception. He is frustrated that, you know, campaign contributions from a, a major industry in his home state and an otherwise meaningless amendment vote from 2 years ago are are this shadow hanging over his campaign and, uh, you know, it, when you see a candidate use language like, we're gonna punish the pharmaceutical industry for price gouging when he's talking on a radio show about threatening, uh, exclusivity for drug companies if, if they raise prices, uh, unreasonably as his administration would view it. Yeah, that's, that's a big deal. Um, it is, it is Bernie Sanders type language on the pharmaceutical industry from someone who historically is is not known for it. And also we should say uh, that Booker in, in 2017, he announced he wasn't going to take corporate money, corporate PAC money, to, to fund his campaigns. He also made a specific pledge about the pharmaceutical industry, which is that he wouldn't be accepting individual donations from pharmaceutical industry executives. So he, he really is, is bending over backwards to distance himself, position himself in, in kind of the, the populist mode of the the Bernie Wing anti-corporate Uh, progressives who are who are in this fight.
0: So now let's talk about the next Democrat expected to join the race. That is Amy Klobuchar, the Minnesota senator who unfortunately has not gone on Hot 97 to date, but is expected to announce this weekend that she's running for president as well. So Lev, what is Klobuchar's record on drug pricing look like?
4: Klobuchar is is basically the opposite of the Cory Booker model in terms of how she's approaching this issue. Amy Klobuchar is introducing legislation that she's worked on with Republicans. So it, that's not to say that the, the other Democrats are introducing purely partisan legislation, but it is legislation that just is not going to move in a Republican-controlled Senate. Klobuchar is totally the opposite. She's uh, working with Chuck Grassley, a Republican from Iowa who chairs the Senate Finance Committee, and they've worked on, on bills about personal drug importation from Canada. They've worked on, on bills about ensuring generic drug makers' access to, to samples from brand name manufacturers to, to encourage uh, generic competition. So she's working really on what she would tell you is is common sense, low-hanging fruit legislation So moving on, one of the
1: early front-runners seems to be California Senator Kamala Harris, who entered the race on Martin Luther King Jr. Day. She made a brief mention of the drug industry at her big launch speech in Oakland. Let's listen to what she told the crowd.
3: Big pharmaceutical companies have unleashed an opioid crisis from the California coast to the mountains of West Virginia. And people, once and for all, we have got to call drug addiction what it is. A national public health emergency.
1: So, Lev, how do you think uh, drug pricing is going to factor into Harris's campaign?
4: It's going to be really interesting. It's it was interesting to hear the pejorative phrase "big pharma" used at her campaign launch in Oakland, but uh, in the context of, of the opioid crisis and not high drug costs. So. Harris is with a couple other 2020 contenders like, like Jeff Merkley, uh, like Kirsten Gillibrand. She, she is on legislation that, you know, aims to crack down on price gouging. It's a a Senate bill that again is, supported only by Democrats and is unlikely to become law uh, since Republicans are in the majority. But to hear her talk about uh, big pharmaceutical companies unleashing an opioid crisis is interesting to me, just because she's already taking heat from the left for her career as a prosecutor. People are unsure as, about nominating a, a Democratic prosecutor, essentially. So she's using the drug industry as as a means of talking about the opioid crisis the the social justice implications of you know another drug war uh, of cracking down on on drug distribution and and possession and she's tying that to to big pharma but that's what the message has been for her in the early going it hasn't been about drug prices specifically so it's it's a different type of pharma bashing which seems to be all the rage for democrats but it's it's not the same type of talk we're hearing from other candidates in the early going.
2: And before we let you go, Lev, we have to ask you about another thing that happened in Washington this week. President Trump, of course, gave his State of the Union address, where he made a few claims, some of them misleading, about his administration's progress in lowering drug prices. So what did Democrats, including the ones running or thinking about a run for president, think about what Trump had to say about drug pricing on Tuesday night?
4: So I, I wrote earlier this week with my colleague, Nick Florco, that the, the Democratic response was pretty divided. And I think, frankly, you can attribute that to Trump not endorsing a particular bill or or really getting too wonky, too specific in the State of the Union address, which is to be expected, there essentially was a feeling of optimism. We could potentially work with the president, but there also was just uh, you know a little resentment that there wasn't a ton of direction and that there weren't a ton of policy specifics and that the president didn't come out and say, here's a bill I'd like you to introduce and I'd like Congress to pass it and send it to my desk. That would have been, you know, the kind of most urgent call to action and, and people just didn't see it.
0: Lev, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, guys. Always a pleasure.
2: That does it for another episode of The Readout Loud.
1: Thank you to Heisen Debonado who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr is our senior producer and Rick Burke is our executive producer.
2: And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like or didn't like about this week's episode. Tell us what you think about the 2020 Contenders records on drug pricing or wish Adam a happy birthday. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at We do appreciate the feedback, so
0: thank you. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to
1: get your podcasts. See you next week.